Henry Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard College. And the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. I have two episodes for you for this weekend. Uh, one of them is Excursus B. It is my live book launch event at Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, uh, which was last night, All Souls Day, November 2nd, in which I spoke for a while about this book and how it came about and uh, publishing and writing and, and things of interest to this particular podcast uh, and read a little from the book. I'm going to also pop in here and complete the reading of Chapter 1 uh, of All Souls Day. Uh, and then sang a song. So, boy, are you in for a humongous treat or something. So here it is, the November 2 All Souls Day in-store book launch of Playing Saint, All Souls Day. You may also be wondering what this contraption is that I just put around my neck, uh, which says my name and has a bunch of ribbons. This is a lanyard from a writing conference. And I've been in ministry for many years, and I've been to many conferences. Writing conferences are different. At writing conferences, you look at people, and you can tell who's important and how important they are based on, like, the number of inches of ribbons they have. So if it goes down to here, that is somebody you want to suck up to. You want to sit by them at lunch. You want to hand them your card and tell them about your book. If they only have one or two ribbons, they're human garbage. Just push them aside on the way to the elevator. I'm kidding, but I've seen that sort of thing. Uh, or if you have one ribbon and it says editor, basically you are a demigod of some kind. Uh, so this is how you know that I am an author, because it's on the ribbon, and that I'm the speaker. The fact that I'm up here speaking is a bit of an indicator, but really you know because it's on the ribbon. And I cheated with this one because this is, uh, you know, night for my books and I should feel important. I actually took a couple of these off of one conference lanyard and stuck them onto another to make it even longer. Uh, on my ribbon here, I have the one for finalist. And that is because at, at uh, this particular conference, I was a finalist. My book was a finalist for an award called the Carol Award. And that way I walk around and everyone would go, which, which category? And wow, it's congratulations. And because they do it on the last night, there's not a ribbon for a winner. But you can tell by this tiny little pin that I didn't win. Because at the end, they said, okay, all the finalists who didn't win, come over here. We have something for you, like a parting gift for you. And they brought us like 10 feet away from where they were taking the celebratory picture of all the winners with their trophy. And they were like, here's a pin. And we were like, thanks. <laughs> so, so I want to talk, though, about... Uh, more exciting things, and that is not looking back, but looking at my new book, Playing Saint All Souls Day. And here's the thing about this book, you guys. This is the stupidest book I could possibly have written, 
Let me explain. In 2013, I got a two-book deal with HarperCollins Publishing, which is like the biggest publisher in the country, on their Thomas Nelson uh, imprint, which is the oldest Christian publisher in the country. And I had a book came out that was called Playing Saints, it's the one with all the blood on it, um, it's to appeal to all the women who read Christian fiction. And uh, we, had a, we had a fun shindig here at Baker, and a lot of people came, and it was a lot of press, and, and it was very exciting times. And then I, I had another book come out with them in 2014 called The Last Con. Uh, oh, here, I have a copy of that here, too. Uh, and we had another event here, and it was very exciting. Uh, I didn't sell as many books. Uh, that may inform the next part of the story. Uh, in 2016, I wrote a proposal. You have to write book proposals in order to uh, get a book with a publisher. And it was for a second book uh, for Playing Saint. And, and the reason that I wrote this is because I had people emailing me and asking me, like, are you going to do another one of those books? I, I'd like to see kind of the next chapter of that. Uh, and so I sent that in. Because when you have a contract, usually it includes this thing called a right of first refusal, which means when you're going to come out with another book, the same publisher has the right to put it out. Actually, I guess they reserve the right to refuse it, and, and they exercised the right uh, and refused it. Uh, they were like hard pass. And so I said, all right, well, nobody else is going to want the second book to a you know, modestly performing novel that is owned by the competition. And I moved on to some other things. And after a while, I just started having these random uh, epiphanies about this story that I now wasn't going to write. Like, this needs to have this goal, and then this can come together. And I started writing it anyway. And, uh, oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and I started uh, putting together an outline, and I started writing it. I started telling some of my friends about it. Uh, and I had a, a friend who is very, very successful uh, in, in the world of, of writing and, and fiction, and he almost did like a little intervention. He was like, Zach, you don't want to do this. You, you still have kind of a platform. You still have, you know, some name recognition and stuff, so you should try and build and grow your readership with something anyone can buy and read, rather than, say, limit it to people who already bought and liked uh, your first novel. Uh, and, you know, he was right, Although, I mean, this group of people is not fixed. You can still buy it. There's a bunch of them over there. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It just always says one or two left in stock. Uh, order quickly. Uh, and, and it says one, then it says two, then it says one. I don't understand what that's all about. But uh, uh, you can find them in bargain bins, too, sometimes. Have you ever found one of your books in a bargain bin? I found one at Goodwill. I've seen one of your books in a bargain bin. How's that, Susie Finkbeiner? <laughs> <laughs> What is this? Misery Loves Company? The reason that I wanted to write this book was because, first of all, I knew there were people who would like it. Like, here's the thing. When you want to sell, you're hoping to sell 10,000 copies, and you sell four or five, the tendency is I'm going to broaden, kind of modify what I'm writing to try and change it up and include different people. My, my attitude was rather... No, why change it? Cater to those people. That's your base, right? I want to write books that I would want to read. And if there are some people somewhere that also want to read them, then why not write for them? It's kind of like on Sunday morning, I'm a minister. Uh, that's my, my calling in life. And if there's very few people, like there's really nice weather or there's really bad weather, or kind of in between, and so people decide, I'm not coming to church today. I have this sometimes this, this knee-jerk reaction to, to, like, get grumpy. 
And, and if, obviously that's very unspiritual. I should be saying to myself, it doesn't matter. The number of people are here or here. The Lord is going to be glorified in what we do. But even from a, a pragmatic point of view, it doesn't make any sense to like take it out on the people who actually came. <laughs> what I've taken to doing when I'm in the flesh is, is hold that, bottle that up, and then later on send out passive-aggressive cards to people who weren't there. And it's like, are you okay? Is everything all right? Um, <laughs> But so I thought that what I wanted to do was, was kind of, and this sounds weird, but almost like say thank you to the people who liked the first book and emailed me about the first book and stuff by, by coming out with another one. Uh, but more than that, there's kind of a, a symbolic uh, aspect of this for me, specifically for me. As a, a pastor, uh, I talked and, and I've written, uh, you know, a lot of the nonfiction stuff I've written, the articles I've written, the blogs and stuff, uh, is about how there's there's kind of two paths in ministry. And I, I found myself at a crossroad. I was here in Grand Rapids for about 10 years. I was at uh, Cornerstone University and got an undergrad degree. Then I was at uh, the seminary across the pond. So I spent nine years in like one block. And uh, when I got done with that in 2005, there was very much a, a growing culture in the church that said, if you're a minister that's worth your salt, you're going to have bigger and bigger followings. You're going to have more and more people celebrating you. You're going to have a lot of people following you online. You're going to go to bigger and bigger churches. And I started seeing people that I'd gone to seminary with. I took five years for a three-year degree because I was working full-time. Some of them had already graduated. They'd gone to a church, and then they moved on to another church in the course of five years. And, uh, and then, you know, some of them were already looking at another church. And I, and I said to myself, you know, I can either go that route, kind of climb the ladder and try to get to the whatever, 10,000-seat arena by the time I turn 50, or rather than looking for the first church, the first rung on the ladder, I can say, God, where do you want me to go and stay and minister for the long haul? Uh, and, and that is what I chose to do. And, and it was hard to do. Everyone had, in that, this time, it's 2005, everyone had a very special dream of you know being the conference speaker. Everyone's using each other like, hey, do you know John Piper's cousin, and can you, you know, give him a copy of my manuscript? Uh, and, and, you know, we, here in Grand Rapids, we had a little of that celebrity preacher stuff touch us a little bit. You might remember. I don't know. Uh, and, and there was the Young Calvinist movement um, where I knew a lot of people who had a lot of influence. But I had a, a seminary professor who said, uh, he said to me, you know, if I ever pastor, and I might, he was a, a Hebrew professor. And he was one of the most brilliant men I've ever met in my life. He knew, he literally knew the Bible uh, the way that, that most people haven't in, in centuries and centuries. I mean, just, just knew it in the original language. He said, my dream, my goal would be to have two or three couples, and that's our church. And I thought, wow, that is really inspiring to me. The idea of instead of going an inch thick and a mile wide, being able to go deep. And so I decided that that was what I was going to, this is going somewhere, I swear. Uh, so I, I went that route, and then this book thing came, and it was almost to me like it was like a reward for that. Like when Solomon prayed, and God said, what do you want? And he said, well, I could ask for riches and long life and, and a beautiful wife and all sorts of you know, power and earthly things, but instead I'll ask for wisdom. And who remembers what, what uh, God said in response? I'll give you all the rest of yeah, well, because you asked for wisdom, not all these other things. I'll give you wisdom, and then I'll give you all these things, too. And it was almost like I was like, well, you know, you, you went the right route. You made the right choice. So here you go, two-book contract, and it looks like things are, are going to keep on moving in that direction. And, and by the way, that's 
one reason why it was very ironic that this book is about uh, a minister who's kind of on that other track and rediscovers the freedom of giving up the platform and the accolades of men and, and forgetting about success by the world's metrics and instead becoming a, just a faithful gospel preacher. But it's also why it was so jarring when that like freight train sort of stalled out and left me sort of stranded going, I thought we were taking this to the top, uh, and, and now we're not anymore. Uh, if you're curious about how all that played out, I have a podcast um, called The Clinch Podcast. You can find that on uh, iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're interested in writing, uh, and if you're, if you're interested in, in more of my fiction, uh, I read a little a chapter of a book every, every week on that. Uh, but ultimately, this thing was very redemptive for me. Uh, and what's funny is, in writing Playing Saint All Souls Day then, uh, I take the main character, Parker Saint, from the first book, and kind of give him that same conundrum of, he makes the right decision, and he, he gives up all this worldly success, and, and the, you know, the, the word faith heresy walks away from it, and, and all these things that are, that are very unbiblical. And then he says, God, how come it's not all going the way it's supposed to go? in light of the fact that I, I did you a solid. Now what's happening? And so I, I, and I you know, there's, Aaron read this, and, and a few other people read this and said, that's really sad. Is that, is that you? And I was like, no, 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 no. But there's, a little, there's little bits in there. There's, there's Parker Saint's book release day when his book finally comes out. And uh, I don't know, other authors, if, if you have had this experience where your first book comes out, and you're like, I'm going to go and see it in the store, and then I'm going to look online and see if anyone's talking about it, and look at the Amazon ranking, and things are going to happen. You're nodding, and you're like, nothing, nothing happens. Literally nothing happens. It doesn't, probably unless you're, unless you're John Grisham, nothing happens. Uh, you're going to celebrate the, the new book with, what, like packing your kid's lunch and sending them off to... These are the things that we, that we do on book release day. Um, but that was, for me, the real reason to write All Souls Day, was, was to be able to kind of follow that next step. When you, when you say, okay, God, I'm in, I'm taking up my cross and following you, I'm, I'm in with the theology of the cross that seeks Christ, seeks God where we won't find him, where we, where we don't think we'll find him. You know, we would think we'd find him in uh, a mansion or on a, uh, a throne surrounded by, you know, being fanned by beautiful women and fed grapes. Instead, we find him in a food trough. We find him homeless, wandering around the Middle East. We find him naked, pinned to a cross, dying like a common criminal. I went that way instead of the way of glory, and yet Parker's still saying, well, where, where's the, the reward? And so I think that was an exciting thing, an interesting thing. I hadn't seen anyone really uh, kind of uh, explore that. So the way that I, I put this book out, it's called Independently. We used to call that self-published, but indie or independent has such a a better ring to it. Actually, uh, a friend of mine, Ted Clock, who's published about 13,000 books by 18,000 publishers, uh, and I put, put this uh, uh, indie press, gut check press, into place uh, about five years ago. We put out a bunch of little satires, uh, little fun books. You can find The Christian Gentleman's Smoking Companion, a guide to uh, smoking cigars and pipes to the glory of God over there. Um, and uh, we, so I, I just used that. That little... Uh, imprint to put out this book. And it's an unusual thing to do, to say, this book came out with HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson, and I'm going to follow it up with this other book by uh, Gut Check Press, which is a P.O. box in Lansing, Michigan. 
Uh, and, and let me just do the last few minutes I have. Do I have any time? I never say. Look at this. More people came from Lansing than, than Grand Rapids. So you see I made a good choice with this church that I, that I wound up at. Uh, but they'll tell you I never ask if I have more time. I just take more time. But I, I thought I would just kind of unpack a little bit the, the difference, the, the kind of pros and cons, the advantages of, of independent versus the advantages of, of publishing traditionally. And I know there's at least a few people here who, who write and, and have published or want to publish. Uh, and, and more and more people are deciding to simply publish independently because there are advantages to it. And a lot of people are doing both. They call that hybrid. The, the advantages of uh, traditional publishing are obvious right off the bat. There's this thing called an advance where they say, here's how much money you would make in the first year if your book sold way better than it's actually going to sell. And we'll just give it to you all at once. And then if it doesn't make that much, keep it. Doesn't matter. Is that a racket or what? If, is that's, a, that's a great deal if you can get it. And let me tell you, those checks feel really good. So that's an advantage of traditional publishing. There's the idea of it just feeling more legit and being more legit. And I get so annoyed when I see, what did I see a tweet the other day? It said, everyone is now a publisher just as legitimate and as influential as the biggest traditional publishers. And it's, what world are you living on? No, no. No, it's more legitimate, it's more uh, influential, it's, it's a lot better uh, to have the kind of reach that you have with a traditional publisher, that kind of machine behind it, all that power, all that money going into it. Uh, and then the other thing is marketing. I am increasingly convinced that, uh, sorry to any publishing professionals in the room, that at least people who are marketing Christian fiction are just like randomly being like, eh, try, like got a dartboard, and just throwing things at it, like, huh, radio interviews about the Pope, try it. So I did 20 of those. I, I don't know much about the Pope, and here I am, but, you know, I'm, they're asking me questions, I'm like Googling, oh yeah, it looks like Pontifus Maximus, I don't know. And yet, it's better to have something than nothing. And usually, they'll give you as much in a marketing budget as they gave you in advance. So even for a small book, you know, thousands of dollars are being spent to market this thing. And when you write something, you kind of pour yourself into it. You do want as many people as possible to read it. It's, that's not necessarily coming from a bad place. I mean, why write it if people aren't going to read it? Uh, and, you know, I've, I've done a lot of workshops over the years about the indie and uh, uh, traditional and, and the advantages of one over the other. Um, and and I've, I've led a lot of talks on that and, and done a lot of uh, stuff at writing conferences. And I will tell you, when people say you have equal space you know, on Amazon.com, that's just not true. Everyone has one page for the book, but you, know, you don't have a bunch of different avenues feeding into that if you're not traditional. However, there are advantages to independent publishing. One of them is you can say whatever you want. And I totally did in this book. There might be people who are nervous, like, wondering if they should take the books off the shelves because they're not sure what's in them. But hopefully, as a minister, I wouldn't want to say anything that would hurt my witness. But there were, with this book, there were a bunch of things. I didn't think they were, you know, they weren't profane. I didn't think they were even edgy or, or iffy. And they're like, no, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. Uh, and you can, you're in control of the content, which is very cool. Uh, and, and there's, you know, the formulaic elements of Christian fiction that every editor wants you to include in all your books. You don't have to do it. You can do something weird. You can, you can have uh, two parallel stories that barely come together at the end, which I kind of do in this one. So you're in control, and that's always exciting, complete creative control. You're in control of things like your cover. This, 
uh, cover originally came to me uh, in a different form, about three times as much blood. And, and by the way, I wanted to call it Demoniac, and they're like, no, women won't buy that. It sounds like a horror story. It's like, all right, we came up with this title, and they're like, here's the cover. Blood. <laughs> and, and all of it, it didn't just have like the shadow. It all had white, reflective uh, elements, you know, so that it really made it hard to read the, the title. And my assumption going into this was, I think I got this from a combination of movies and knowing people in the publishing industry and just common sense, was that you would get some like mock-ups and they'd be like, here's some cover ideas. You know, This person in graphic design put them together and they're chopping at the bit to get the cover going. And you would say, well, here's some notes. I kind of like this. I don't like that. Can you change this? Can you tweak that? So that's what I did. And what followed was best described as like the Cuban Missile Crisis, except in Christian fiction. And like... Agents calling people, and the head of the, the division is involved, and everyone's like, why is Zach trying to change things? What really happens is they say, hey, freelancer, would you design a couple covers for this book? And then they want you to say, oh, I like cover A, not cover B. So it's very cool to be able to have your cover look like whatever you want it to look like. Uh, and you're in charge of the timeline as well. Uh, you know, with, you, you're not in any control. When you, My wife just got a two-book contract with a major publisher, she didn't get to choose what list she was on when she, when she is going to come out. They're like, here's where you are, and if we want to move you, we'll move you. It's like a literal year between when you turn in the book and when it's actually going to be on shelves. That's a long time. And because they're setting all the deadlines, there's a lot of just waiting there, like, I don't know, what, nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden scurrying and rushing. And, and uh, you know, you see when you're friends with a lot of authors on Facebook, you see this happening. They're, they're getting shaky because nothing's going on. And then all of a sudden they're like, I haven't bathed in nine days. You know, I don't even know my children anymore. Uh, and so you're in control. What was a cool thing with All Souls Day was uh, this book actually takes place like last week and into this week. Uh, and it, today is All Souls Day. Did you know that? Uh, All Souls Day uh, is a Roman Catholic holiday. It comes right after All Saints Day. And so ideally, the climax of this book is happening in Grand Rapids right now, somewhere. You know how in Grand Rapids there's all these serial killers and car chases and you know, gunfights and stuff. But in order to kind of make it feel like it was right now, at the last minute before locking everything down, I popped in some references to like uh, fundraisers for Puerto Rico, uh, reference to this uh, police scandal thing with the, the recorded line uh, phone calls, and all sorts of stuff that kind of lock it down. You can't do that when you're working a year out. You're, you're kind of shackled by their particular timeline, and people are working on other books when you wish that they were thinking about yours. Also, was able to work in uh, some art prize stuff. This is my favorite thing. I think it's kind of funny. Uh, in the book, <laughs> there's a, the killer. There's a serial killer, naturally. And uh, kills somebody and like kind of sets them up as if they were an art, <laughs> art prize exhibit. Uh, with a little panel plaque that says, you know, what the, the exhibit means and that it's an official entry. And people don't notice for, for days and days until it starts to smell funky. Um, <laughs> probably not anything I could have gotten away with uh, traditionally either. Um, of course, if I wanted to really be realistic with Grand Rapids, it would have been like just micropubs opening. And my, more micropubs. <laughs> and then nanopubs inside the micropubs and that kind of thing. Beards. Um, but, but, you know, that year long, it's important. Editorial is happening during that time. So independent 
uh, book publishing involves a lot of scrambling trying to do that. It helps if you're married to someone who like professionally does that, and she's willing to help you out. Uh, if you buy a copy of this book tonight, these have two typos in them that were found at the 11th hour. If you bought one online, it would have zero typos. These are worth more because they're, they're rare. Uh, that's the thing. Um, you know what? I'm going to stop there because I'm, I'm rambling now. I should tell you that if you coughed or chuckled or anything in the last 25 minutes, you're going to be on my podcast because I'm recording live uh, this event for the, the Clinch podcast. Uh, and if anyone has any questions or, or critiques about my presentation, uh, maybe throw them at me now. Uh, and then I have uh, uh, some books to give away and some coffee to give away. That's exciting. What's the guitar for? Just wait. Let's see. What's, What's the, the guitar, guitar for? You don't, she doesn't actually know. She's been asking me, why do you have a guitar? Is there a prize for finding the typo? Ooh! <laughs> yeah, you find the typo. By the time I give away any books, you do, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you something. You know what, you, you find the typo and I'll give you a gift certificate good for five minutes off any sermon. <laughs> yeah! What are the things that publishers told you you couldn't include? <laughs> um, well, there were obvious things like, I, I, I don't know how, but I had a couple times where s someone in like dialogue sort of took, not the Lord's name in vain, but the word God, um, in, in the kind of like once removed way that, I don't know, didn't really scandalize me. Uh, anything that said, you know, hell or, uh, I don't know, probably words I can't say from the podium into the thing. Anything that was kind of there to color it with realism. I don't like Christian fiction that's like the serial killer pulled out his crooked knife and said, oh, fooey. You know, <laughs> and at the same time, why is there this weird standard where like you, you look at the shelves in the suspense section and it's like, violence is fine, but, you know, language that's not profane, not obscene, you know, not, not really anything that would make anyone blink or blush isn't allowed. So there, there was some of that. Uh, and then there was just like kind of plot elements that I thought were interesting, but they didn't fit the, the kind of formula. They didn't, they didn't fit into that three-act, you know, problem, uh, gets worse, resolution kind of thing. And so they just said, no, lose that, lose that, lose that. Add more strong female characters, uh, which, thank you, because this then now is uh, a female is the, is the main character. Uh, and... Yeah, there, were, there was quite a bit throughout, you know, the, the book is very different from what it was when I sent it to the publisher initially. And, and a lot of it for better. Uh, but some of it, yeah, it's just a little annoying when you're like, this is my baby. I, I you know, bled onto the page and now you're like, nah, not this, not this. All right, I'm going to give away some books and coffee now. The coffee is Gut Check Blend Espresso. It comes from Hector Ligaris and his card says Coffee Alchemist which means he's awesome. Ligaris Roasters. Gut check, by the way, uh, not only... I'm going to read a little bit of the first uh, chapter to you because it's uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> by the way, something that I wanted to do with the first book, here's an example, and uh, was not allowed to, was have a cold open. You know, the book starts right away, like when you're watching a movie and it's just all of a sudden there's action, and then after the first scene, the title card comes up. And I thought, yeah, that'd be cool in a book. And they said, no, you're not allowed to put anything before the title page except endorsements. But now I am, because I can do whatever I want. Okay. So this is uh, 
Well, there's no setup. It doesn't need to be set up because when you're reading the book, there's no setup. Corinne never wore heels. Even at her wedding, it had been flats. Who could see them under all that overblown dress anyway? It just seemed stupid to risk tripping and falling on her face while cell phones recorded the event from every single angle. And she certainly didn't wear them at work. Already on the tall side, they offered no advantage in that department. And everyone agreed that Corinne exuded power and confidence without click-clacking everywhere she went. In fact, she only wore heels when she was a hooker. And that was happening less and less these days. Corinne had mixed feelings about this. That morning, as the briefing came to a close, the captain from Vice had announced senior detectives can sit out of the solicitation sting if they like. The comment was meant for her, she was certain. For one thing, he was looking directly at her when he said it, and she knew that Vivian Allen, the only other woman in the room besides her own captain, would absolutely be going undercover tonight, walking the streets, approaching cars, waiting for the Johns to say those words that would bring out the handcuffs. Senior detectives. She realized it was probably her imagination, but it seemed like the captain had put an odd emphasis on the word senior, a little more like senior discount or senior citizen. Real or not, this slight had guaranteed she'd be out there tonight, in character, gathering in a fall harvest of scumbags to be processed and prosecuted. At 47, she was the oldest of the five false prostitutes by more than a decade. But she was nowhere near ready to begin fading into the background. Sure, she'd be captain herself one day, but she had a very specific timeline in mind, and that was a ways off. Tonight, she was a hooker. Checking her reflection in a cracked and taped window, Corinne wondered if perhaps she'd overdone it. Earlier, while shinnying into her go-to streetwalker outfit, it had struck her that perhaps the captain had a point. Her trendy but professional hairstyle, her toned arms, her alert gaze, the slight crow's feet and her otherwise smooth and moisturized skin, they all screamed cop, or maybe principal or consultant, but definitely not prostitute. And so she'd caked on the makeup, crop-dusted the restroom with hairspray, and switched out her usual streetwalker's skirt, or shirt rather, for a bright orange tube top, that reminded her of those aerobics videos she'd done every morning through much of the 80s. And of course, she'd squeezed her feet into these four-inch heels, knowing full well that getting from point A to point B while wearing them was outside of her skill set. Got one approaching, came a quiet, scratchy voice from inside the vinyl purse. Silver Benz, M-Class. Dang, nice ride. She reached into the purse and clicked off the radio, letting her hand run along the cuffs and Ruger 9mm pistol trucked inside. A moment later, the SUV appeared around the corner, slow and quiet, searching. It was a few years old, but in pristine condition. Corinne overrode her usual impeccable posture and pushed her hip out of joint, letting her mouth hang half open in the kind of glazed-over, detached sneer she'd seen on the faces of innumerable prostitutes during her early years as a beat cop. The Benz pulled to a stop a few feet from her, and the tinted window came down, revealing a fake-baked man a little older than Corinne, leaning lazily behind the wheel. He wore a Hugo Boss suit and tie, clasped with an obnoxious gold chain. The man smiled broadly at Corinne, revealing a mouthful of comically capped teeth, ringed by a meticulously shaped beard. How are you this evening, baby girl? He oozed, squinting creepily at her. Baby girl? Corinne swallowed down some bile and leaned partway into the car, which smelled like old cigarettes and new leather. She glanced toward the back. She could see no one else in the vehicle, but the seats were all down, which turned her stomach. Oh, I'm good, she purred. What can I do for you? The man's fading smile confirmed her fear. She was coming on too strong, too confident. A real prostitute would approach a car this nice with apprehension, even if she knew the driver, beat around the bush a little. She squinted back at the man suspiciously, tried to save the collar. Wait, you a cop? 
she asked, going on the offensive. Ah, she dug a stiletto heel into her calf. Why on earth has she said cop with some kind of Boston Wharf accent? This was Grand Rapids, Michigan, perhaps the most Midwestern city in the Midwest. She could feel her backup watching and listening from behind the reach of the streetlights, muttering to each other about the auto-practice senior detective who still insisted on playing dress-up in the midst of their sting. Am I a what? A cop, she enunciated. You look like a pig. Don't see a lot, of, a lot of cars this nice in this neighborhood, you know? He nodded, but in a way that said no. You haven't seen this car around here before? Because I'm down here all the time. Once a haven for crime and prostitution, Division Avenue had been slowly gentrifying over the years, pushing the criminal element back into a relatively short stretch of debauchery. There was only one reason a man like this would be a regular down here. Corinne needed to take this creep down. He glanced off into the distance, eyes searching for nothing in particular, his interest spent. He was going to drive off scot-free, probably head back to his wife and his home theater and his cushy job where everyone respected him. Corinne reached into the car, around the steering wheel, and turned off the ignition, then forced herself to place her hand tenderly on his knee. How about you and I go somewhere so we can talk, she said. The man wrenched her hand away. Get lost, he growled. Sweetie, what did I... A sudden jarring, and Corinne felt the concrete connect with her back and skull. The memory of the scumbag shoving her registered only after she landed, and the first clear thought to enter her mind was that if it hadn't been for these stupid heels, she wouldn't be lying here, staring up at the moon and dreading how sore she'd be tomorrow. She laughed angrily and gave her head a shake. Assaulting an officer was a felony. She reached for her, her cuffs. cuffs. Oh, oh no. no. The purse. Her gun, her handcuffs, her badge. Where was it? The John must have grabbed it when he pushed her. Nice job, senior detective. The sound of the car's ignition roused her. She could hear the gentle purr of the engine and the electric whir of the window beginning to close, cutting off access to the contents of that ugly black purse. Curran kicked off her heels and, with a burst of speed and energy, was back on her feet, closing the space between them. Her left hand darted into the car, reaching again for the ignition. She felt the chunky smart key for just a second before the man's fingers locked tightly onto her wrist. Then she felt the window closing against her upper arm, clamping her in place, apparently right where a major branch of nerves brought a stream of information from arm to brain. It was only bringing one message in this moment. Pain. Looking in through the tinted glass, she could barely make out her own hand a few inches from the man's face. Feeling strangely disconnected from it, she commanded a sharp snap from her elbow, driving the heel of her palm into his nose. A crunch and the spatter of warm blood. Grand Rapids Police! She shouted, smacking the roof of the car with her free hand. Roll down the window, you're under arrest. She silently prayed he would obey. Her backup was undoubtedly closing in and Corinne did not like being rescued. The man's lips curled into a wicked smile, then the car began to move. Corinne padded along awkwardly next to it, her sheer stocking-clad feet slapping along the blacktop. Stop! Now! She shouted, grabbing for the man's face. He clutched her wrist again, harder this time, and pinned it to the steering wheel. Then he sped up a bit, smiling broadly now. Corinne missed a step and felt an explosion of pain up by her armpit, where the car window was biting into her flesh like a dull knife. She recovered her footing. Looking down, she cursed the German engineers for not including a running board, a perch on which she could ride this out. She pushed herself to keep up, ignoring the potholes and broken glass beneath her feet and frantically assessing the situation. There might be enough of an opening there to allow her other hand access to the window controls, or failing that, the driver's throat, but such fine motor skills were not an option while trying to stay upright as the car picked up even more speed. 
She momentarily lost her footing again as the man turned right onto Baker Street, jerking her wrist along with the steering wheel and bringing another spike of pain. She looked in helplessly at her limp arm. With no leverage, she couldn't even fight for control of the car. For all the guy's compounded crimes, he was gripping the wheel and Corinne's wrist at precisely ten and two. With a sudden surge of gas, the SUV jerked forward, pulling her off her feet. It felt as though the window was now slicing through her flesh right down to the bone, although she knew that was impossible. With a desperate kick, she snagged the ledge of the rear window with her nylon-covered toes and launched her lower body up onto the roof, clutching the luggage rack with both legs in an awkward improvised scissor lock. Half upside down, her head a few feet from the concrete below, she tried to estimate how fast they were going. Forty, maybe? Fifty? Her free hand groped blindly on the roof of the car, finding a bungee cord stretched across the luggage rack. She wrapped it twice around the meat of her hand and gripped it tightly. She could imagine skis and suitcases up there, which filled her with renewed rage for some reason. Streetlights were zipping by above like a blinking bulb at the end of the tunnel, the kind warning you not to walk toward the light. Tires squealed as the bends took a sharp right, and Corinne slipped a few inches closer to the ground. The tight skirt was keeping her legs from gaining a solid grip. Turning her hips over, she locked a foot under the rear brace of the luggage rack. She could imagine exactly what sort of crunch her ankle would make as it broke into pieces should the John slam on the brake or crash into a parked car. It was worth it, though, to protect her shoulder from a far worse fate. She shuddered at the thought of her body flying through the air at 60 miles an hour while her arm remained firmly locked inside with this sleazebag and his gaudy tie chain. The faint sound of a siren approaching met her ears as the bends ran yet another red light. Corinne consciously kept herself from thinking the words, I'm too old for this. She wiggled the fingers of her left hand, now going numb and tingly under the driver's death grip, and began to form a plan. First thing, she needed a better hold on that roof. Against every instinct, she let go of the bungee and reached down, or was it up, to her skirt, jerking the fabric and tearing a few more inches into the slit on her right leg. That should free her up enough. Shifting against the roof rack, she felt a sense of dread settling in. The skirt wasn't the problem. It was the rack itself, too low to permit any more of her leg beneath it. And her left thigh was now spasming involuntarily, prelude to a full shutdown. God, I don't usually bring you to work, but I'll die if I fall from this car. I need some, wait, the baton. She reached to her inner thigh, drawing the collapsible baton she had concealed there. She flicked her wrist, extending the weapon from 7 inches to 21 with a satisfying shick. The satisfaction quickly faded, though. Now what? Newer batons came equipped with a special cap, ceramic pins that would shatter safety glass with one firm wrap. Not this one. It was outdated. A senior baton. She would need some power, some leverage, if she hoped to break the glass. Pinned as she was, hanging off the roof of this SUV, she had neither. Besides, knocking out the side window would only cause her to drop to the concrete below, probably cracking her head open like a melon. If she could get the car to stop, though, even for a second, she could probably drop down and free herself. Another upswelling of pain as her shoulder, knees, and ankle flared. Red brake lights illuminated the road behind her, and then a turn signal. The guy was actually using his turn signal. She ground her jaw and internalized the pain, saving it for later, and again anchored her right arm to the bungee, ready for the SUV to take the corner. Glancing ahead, she saw two lanes closed off by orange barrels, a common sight this time of year, and a backlog of vehicles funneling down to one lane. 
The bend slowed to maybe 10 or 15 miles an hour as the driver cut through an alley, searching for an open road on the next block. As he cranked the wheel, Corinne's arm was again yanked across the dash. She felt blood vessels bursting where the window had her trapped. Then she felt something small and plastic in her left hand. She blinked hard and peered into the car. It was the end of the gear shift lever. Corinne pinched it as tightly as she could with two oxygen-deprived fingers and a stiff thumb and did not let go as the man straightened the wheel, pulling her hand with it. She felt the lever tip up and a button click under her index finger and then another swell of pain as the car jerked to a stop amid the grinding shriek of the transmission. The man's grip on her wrist released. Her stocking feet were suddenly on the ground again, gravel digging into her arches. With a swing of the baton, she shattered the window, releasing the Benz's hold on her. She brought the baton back down against the driver's nose with a whomph. Reaching around the steering wheel, she finally got a hold of the key, pulled it out, and chucked it into the darkness of the alley. You're under arrest, she rasped between labored breaths. The department-issued vinyl purse was barely visible on the floor of the passenger seat, still latched closed. Out of the car! Now, she ordered. Hands where I can see him. Her own left hand was completely numb, but responding to her repeated commands to open and close, which was a good sign. The John behind the wheel looked her in the eye for the first time. He was high on something, she could see that, and the wheels were turning in his mind as he sat there in his erstwhile getaway car, now safely shifted into park. Then, without so much as a blink, he shifted gears as well, from flight to fight. The door came slamming into Corinne's hip, pushing her back three feet, and the man in the fine suit came roaring out, fists swinging, teeth bared. Her baton was rolling under the SUV. No matter. Corinne didn't need it. She caught him in a wrist lock and took a long step backward, dragging him with her, throwing him off balance, then struck the knife edge of her numb hand against his arm, just above the elbow, raking it up along the protruding bone of her wrist. Pivoting, she dropped her weight hard and brought him to the ground in a heap, turning him onto his stomach. Hands behind your back! Like a defiant toddler, the man yanked his free hand in under his chest. You have no idea who you're messing with, he shouted. Corinne smiled. Right back at you. She wedged her foot into the back of the man's knee, actually wishing she was wearing heels for the first time in her life. Grabbing him around the ankle, she folded his leg down savagely, knowing the burst of pain this would bring to the tibial nerve. High or not, he'd tap out quickly. Flashing blue lights filled the alley, just as she was pulling the man's wrists together behind his back. Not too old for this, she thought, as two uniformed men rushed to her side. Cold metal cuffs came out of a rookie's belt and did their thing. The rookie shook his head at Corinne in disbelief, mouth hanging open. You okay, ma'am? She lifted her left elbow above her head, experimentally. The shoulder ached like fury, but was not dislocated. Giving her arm a full rotation, she nodded. Nothing's torn. I'll be fine. The rookie breathed an expletive, then shook his head again. I can't believe that just happened! She squelched a smile. They'd be talking about this one for a while. Believe it, kid, she said, rising and walking toward the squad car. Not a bad night's work, even for a senior detective. The John was in cuffs, undoubtedly headed for a long stretch and lockup. She was in one piece, banged up, but nothing broken or even bleeding. And most importantly, no one had saved her. Three times in a row, they've made a very nice little sign that says Zachary Bartles speaking and signing. And three times on Facebook, someone has said, oh, I thought it said singing. And so this time I said, all right, I'm singing. (laughs) 
Here we go. It's a little out of tune, but that's not anything unusual. Here we go. <laughs> Another serial killer stalking in GR. An undercover cop hangs from a speeding car. Hard to imagine all this stuff happening here. But who'd buy a book about some hipsters drinking beer? <laughs> Suspend your disbelief and let me take you for a ride. I hope you have the time of your life. A murder victim is disguised as that art prize. But no one notices till he's attracting flies. Who could be doing this where guests have the fun? It might be one of you, it might be Michael Gold. That's someone unpredictable, but in the end revealed. I hope that all your theories are far afield. That's a bad line. I do deserve better. I'm sorry. Some fundy militants are planning something mean. But Father Michael is already on the scene. Yeah, he knows martial arts and guns and knives and stuff. Yeah, compared to Michael, the pastor's not so tough. Suspend your disbelief and let me take you for a ride. I hope you have the time of your life. That's what you call a slant rhyme. It's not really a rhyme. This one's better. When Amazon asks you how many stars, please say five. I hope you have the time of your life. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at zach at zacharybartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>